and welcome to episode 171 of the Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago. With me on the line from Denver, Colorado is the one and only Shane Beeps. Shane, how you doing this week? Shane, I'm doing great. I mean, Stan, I'm doing great. <laughs> now, do you prefer Stan or Stanislav? Or Mr. Golovchuk? Yeah, that's a, actually a, the question I honestly wonder for you. Is because why are you asking me? I'm Shane, <laughs> and frankly, you've been getting my name wrong for 171 episodes. Oh, weird, guys! I had I've got a pack with two Rocco Cabaretti caterers in it, including one. Look at this weirdo one. Whoa, that looks good. Silver foil, or it's like foily edges, a foily picture. This it, is what we're doing now, honey. We're getting cold foils in Magic <laughs> the Gathering packs. It looks great. Me and Rocco are going to What be- is a cold foil? What's the difference between a cold foil and Magic the Gathering normal foils? Is it just sensory? Just like it's cooler to the touch? There's no equivalent. Like they, it's basically like a, it's like if you had a custom foil made or like you draw over highlighted parts with like a magic foil marker or something like that. So it's, 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 it's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, also with us, the Godfather Dave Harburger. Rocco Cabaretti Caterer. Just cracking packs today. Shane, did you like introducing the show? Did it make you feel like a big man? I just wanted us to stop the pre-roll and, and actually get down to business because this is going to be a long episode. I feel like... I feel like we, we, we bit off a lot this week. So Stanislav, why don't you tell us what we're doing this week? I would be happy to. Shane's right. This is a big one because on this week's show, we are doing another special Patreon request episode for one of our double-sided Diamond Dust Rare supporters. This time, it was Cody. Thanks, Cody. Appreciate your ongoing support. We're really psyched to do this episode because Cody gave us a rather unique assignment for today. Yeah. Simply put, how to become... A better Magic the Gathering player. He came to the best three people. Right. We told him to go ask Everett. (laughs) But he was like, look, uh, you're the podcast I support. I've already supported you at the the highest tier for a while. So, uh, no, you're doing this one. And we said, we will try. And you know what? It turned out that we had a lot of ideas on this very esoteric topic. Was it esoteric? It's more just challenging. Because, like, so here's the thing. What I liked about framing this, I'm sure we'll talk about this more in the actual dive down, but in, in framing this episode, it's kind of like how to be a better magic player, but it's like how to be a better magic player in terms of the scope of what we try to accomplish, right? Because, like, we, we come to you all as fellow casual spikes, and we know our limitations, and we know our aspirations, right? And I think that there is always more we can be reaching to, and I think that when it comes to getting better and being a better player, it doesn't mean you're going to be Paulo Vito Domenderosa. It doesn't mean you're going to be Jerry Thompson. It doesn't mean you're going to be, like, Gabe Nassif. It probably just means you're going to be Ari Lax. Yeah. I relax. Or Zvi. You could be a Zvi Moskowitz. You know, I think Dave is going to be a, a, a Kai Boodle. Boodle? Yeah. Buddha. Kai Boodle? <laughs> Boodle? Kai, Kai Boodle, sponsor our podcast. Yeah. So that, that is the dive down. We do have a breakdown during which we're going to say hello and welcome our favorite new Magic the Gathering format, Explorer, and kick off <laughs> our on and off again tradition of loving magic arena we're back on arena babies we we both all three of us put in 500 dollars into arena it's just sitting in gems we don't know what to do with it actually yeah it's a real will they won't they <laughs> kind of situation kind of like ross and rachel and friends will they love arena won't they love arena last season we had a cliffhanger where we all hated historic and hated arena and all it took for them to bring it reel us back in was a promise that we could play the decks in paper again 
Dave, I love this foley of you just opening packs. It's a classic, classic bit. I got a rakish revelers and a gold hound. Is that good? Oh, gold hound. That's a cool one. And an offer you can't refuse. Yeah, we didn't talk about gold hound. I know. I think it was on a list that we sort of just punted because we ran out of time. It's a pretty cool card. I've got an offer you can't refuse. Let's housekeep. No new patrons, no increased tiers. That's okay. We know people like Cody and others support us, and we are grateful to all of you. We do have a new review, though, that Mario has risen. Oh, no. <laughs> this review is not from a Lanowar elf. I'm not a Lanowar elf. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> we Mario has risen, or rather, not a Lanowar elf. Whoever this person is, I don't know their name, gave us 11 out of 10. Whoa. I didn't know I could do that. I thought it was a five-star system. I just, you know, just why didn't turn the 10 up, make the 10 louder. That's what I say. I just, I'm a, I would distort if I did that. You got um, it. The olds. But so Stan's mentioned the Patreon a few times already because we have one of our top tier supporters in Cody. Uh, every six months or so, we work with our top tier patrons to do a custom episode where we talk to them about how they want to, what kind of subject they want to explore, if they have some decks that they're really into and want us to dive into. And so that's always fun. And if you want to do that, you can, uh, you know, that's, it's, it's a pretty top tier. So we know and not everyone has that cash, but if you want to help us keep going, if you want access to the episode early, if you want episode to the uh, custom tokens we have of the future existence of custom deck boxes, all that kind of stuff, you can head on over to patreon.com slash the dive down. As little as a buck a week is all it takes for you to help us out and you get immediate access to the definitively discreet dive down discord conversation literally always happening. I think every second of every day, you know, we get the international crew in at the evening and then the day crew starts in the morning on the East coast. So there's always someone there to hang out with and talk. I, I like one of the things I like about the discord lately is the renewed interest in find an opponent, <laughs> which is because of, I think because of people wanting to mess around with Explorer and because you cannot play it on ladder yet, everyone's like, good God, can we just at least test Explorer a little bit? via direct challenge, please. So that's been fun. And if you'd like support the dive down while playing Magic, not on Arena, of course, you can check out manatraders.com, manatraders.com, the place to rent Magic the Gathering online cards for all of our favorite formats, not your favorite formats, which include Pioneer and Modern for the most part, and a little spicy touch of Legacy in there every once in a while as well, just to kind of... Feel keep, things, keep things fresh. Yeah, just to feel something every once in a while. You know, Stan, every once in a while, needs to virtually touch a Wirewood symbiote to really feel alive. <laughs> and uh, if you would like to help us out, go check them out and uh, use the code THEDIVEDOWN2022 to get 15% off your first two months of card rentals. That's manatraders.com, and we do appreciate your support. Speaking of Explorer, Shane, tell me yes. all about it. Let's explore, explore, guys, because I got to tell you, I was pretty busy when this announcement happened, and I have not fully processed what's going on here at all yet, so I'm excited to hear what you two have to think about this. I've always been kind of an opera person myself. I thought Explore was a little slow and clunky. I like that opera has has tabs, um, mm. and you can download additional widgets for your browser. That's what we're talking about, right? Exactly. Welcome to our new podcast, Exploring Explorer with the explorers <laughs> that was a great movie one of my fa it's one of my favorite like is it late 80s early 90s era i love that movie 
I have no River idea. River Phoenix what you're about. is he I, in that? Do you guys remember Netscape Navigator? Oh yeah, that's. I was gonna make a Netscape joke, but I went a different way. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when Internet Explorer three came out, Dave? I was like actually in anticipation. Of, I was in, in it was in anticipation of a browser being released. That's that's the era of internet that I remember. Anyway, the Explorer we actually want to talk about is Microsoft Edge. It's the greatest web browser on any platform. Microsoft get at us on you know for a month or so. We have known that Wizards was going to give us a true to paper, non rotating format on Arena. We didn't really know what shape that format would take. You know, we had a slightly interesting history of Arena creating new formats, historic alchemy. Let's be honest, we were terrified it was going to be like yes. Magic starting with M20 or something <laughs> like that, where it's going to be like, <laughs> oh, God, we're going to have to do something newer than Pioneer. Yeah, like some. Some weird new formats like a Kaladash remastered on great, and how would that be tied to paper in some way? And but on April twenty first, we got our announcement, and it was pretty much what most people seem to hope for, especially with the recently revitalized interest in Pioneer. So we got this nice one-two punch. We got the OP announcement that was like, "Hey, the next Pro Tour is Pioneer." And then we're going to give you something that mildly approaches Pioneer because what we got was Explore. I wouldn't even say it was more than a one-two punch. You got you got your jab OP system. <laughs> you got the hook, which was Explore. You even got like a cross and an uppercut, which is some changes to the arena play modes and the payout yeah. within certain events and other play modes and, and even what ladder is going to look like moving forward. So there is a lot to talk about here. Yeah. I didn't really get into the weeds on those changes. I think it might be something that we can talk about in future weeks if we want to spend some time exploring those changes or if Explorer is really popping off and want to talk about that. But Explorer is a constructed, non-rotating, true-to-tabletop, in quotes, format using basically what are pioneer legal cards that are on arena. And if Amazing. you have if you, yeah, if you if you play a lot of arena, you probably saw these what was written midweek magic events. I didn't play those. I didn't even really realize they were going on probably during my my downtime of arena. Did, did either of you play those what was written stuff? I sure did. Sweet. So you're prepared then. You've got all the decks in your in your system. You know what's you know what you're going to play day one. Yeah, I mean they did those what was written events like twice in a month. They they actually happened pretty frequently in a short period of time, and they were awesome. I gotta say, they're sweet. It contributes to my excitement for this announcement. So what this is is just another constructed format on Arena. As soon as Streets of New Capenna comes out, uh, which is in what two days from now, Tuesday then it will be a best of one, a best of three, ranked, unranked. There'll be constructed events. There will be tournaments uh, in using the Explorer format. Sounds great. The goal here is not to just make Explorer, of course. It is to get to Pioneer eventually, which is a great promise. This is literally the smartest, kindest thing that they've done on Arena in like two years. <laughs> yes. Am I right? Like I... I really am beside myself that it was this simple of an announcement. We are going to try to get to Pioneer. It's going to take some time. Until then, let's let's play with the cards that we have and have this format that's based on that. This is the second time they made this announcement, though. Yeah. It, it's the simplest kind of thing they could do since the last time they said, we're going to try to get to Pioneer. Yeah, but yeah. they didn't say it. Sp- they didn't say how the last time what they said you're are you talking about a couple years ago when they said they were going to get to pioneer and there was going to be pioneer masters and stuff it was this vague reference to a roadmap yeah and you know we all work in organizations where roadmaps exist so we took it at face value and then they said it's off the roadmap and now it's i guess 
back on the roadmap, but with a little bit more gusto. So yeah, there was a, a very large diversion from the roadmap to harvest some money from the money fields. And yeah, we, <laughs> so we're just gonna, that, we're just going to swing by the farmer's money stand here, and we're yeah. just going to yeah get some fresh money. We just want to go see this roadside attraction of the world's largest ball of yarn <laughs> in the form of historic anthology five, the world's largest pile of burning wild cards. <laughs> um, so if the goal is to get to Pioneer, it's great. That's great. But the timeline and the methodology of that is what is still up in the air and still honestly what I'm anxious about. And so in quotes, I have consider this the first leg of our pioneer journey where one day Explorer will be retired as a format and we'll simply call it pioneer. And their goal is in quotes, all the pioneer cards that matter, which will then allow people to in quotes, again, play the decks they want to play, which is a bit presumptuous because essentially if the goal is to make a priority on the card implementation on what is they're, they're seeing in the pioneer constructed meta that then says hey you're not going to have access to experimental cards you're not going to have access to maybe some of the brewing cards you want to or any kind of tech piece that they didn't hasn't already been seeing play it might be something that they're just not implementing into arena and so we might have even if we're like say say 80 to 85 percent of the, the like a relevant pioneer card pool there still are going to be things that are likely going to be missing from time to time but hopefully we get to the point where that's not a major issue for most players. Yeah, and the funny thing is people might not remember or might not know that this has happened before. It happened on Magic Online. There used to be a format uh, format on Magic Online called Classic that was kind of all of the cards that exist on Magic Online, but not all cards from before you know, Magic Online launched exist exist on Magic Online, and still, I, I don't think all the cards actually exist on on Magic Online at this point. But they have enough to where they really do cover everything that matters in vintage, and so classic went away, and it became now it's just vintage at this point. And it could be a similar thing that happens here, but they haven't had to release new cards uh, through like a you know a side door into the Magic Online environment because of not having them printed yet in a really, really long time. But there was a, a long time where, um, you know, there was this weird kind of old format on magic that people tried to play in place of some of the older stuff. Yeah. And I think that hopefully this doesn't exclude people from playing like a, a pioneer brew or making a pine, the uh, some kind of pioneer deck that they eventually want to make. Um, but I think honestly, that's still a long way off to even know where we're not going to get because there's still a long way to go. They stated that some of the Pioneer cards, there's going to be some Pioneer cards in the Historic Anthology 6 that's coming out this summer, but they stressed that getting to Pioneer on Arena will take several years to accomplish, which I think no matter how you slice it is too long. I'm just going to have that hot take that it, I think it's way too long to take two years to even get to a mostly complete Pioneer and like, unless Explorer is a really compelling enough format that it's like, here's a decent replacement for when I'm playing on my phone, or I just want a be couple best of one games, or like I can't sleep and I want to kill some time, or I got to bust out some quests or something like that. Like, I'll, or they're like a really aggressively building towards supporting as much of the existing metagame as possible. Like, I think that that's just that's a really long roadmap. 
like I said, in the, in the case of Classic, it took several years as well to turn that into the, a legit, more legit format that mirrored paper. We'll see, I guess, right? You know, like how far off it is. I mean, there's that thing that's thrown around by people a lot in this discussion that there's only, you know, less than 100 cards that would make it uh, arena mirror pioneer paper pioneer extremely closely but that leaves out like you said the ability to brew it means that they have perfect information we'll see hopefully it doesn't actually take a couple years especially since i gotta think if they're gonna do pioneer pro tours and stuff like that they're gonna want those on arena if they do any kind of content around them yeah exactly um i also just kind of really wish they had given us like some cards like along with the release of the format like just as a gesture of like goodwill or commitment to the format, like, hey, we've thought about this. Here's Elvish Mystic. It is a reskinned Lanamore Elves. Do you know what I mean? Here's Elvish Mystic. We made a Monastery Swift Spear. Here it is. Like that kind of <laughs> right. thing. Hey, these are not hard cards to make, right? I mean, of course, I don't actually know yeah. what yeah. goes into every you card. You make a card, Shane. <laughs> it just makes Soulscar Mage, but uh, it has haste and doesn't do that. The much more complicated life loss thing or stats loss thing. It's a wither. We call that a wither effect. Wither effect, yes. Um, Dang, nailed it. The ban list, importantly, because we all got to talk about ban sometime, it's it's just going to mirror Pioneers to start. But interestingly, because it is a different format with different cards, or fewer cards, but that still may impact the way decks play out and various power levels and deltas of power levels, they say this may be adjusted if something is problematic in Explorer alone. And those cards are going to be banned outright because it's mirroring paper. There's no rebalancing it like an alchemy. You're going to get your wild cards back if you haven't already received it for something else. So long story short, we have a Pioneer-esque format on Arena. We're missing quite a few of the cards and sets that make up what this format is in paper. But before I think we should you know, eventually talk about some of these decks that people may or may not be trying and explore, let's talk about this. Do you have any thoughts about this, Dave? Like, Stan, what are you thinking about this announcement? What are you feeling? Well, I do love the timing. Because yeah, the timing's I, fe- good. I feel like as far as non-formatting, non-rotating formats go, the historic experience in general, for me, has gotten very samey and and pretty unfun. Yeah. In part because just historic is the dumping ground of cards that are designed for so many different experiences. We got alchemy cards. We got random Modern Horizon 2 cards. We got historic anthology cards that were just added with no very apparent rhyme or reason, except some of them are kind of fun, and most of them actually end up seeing zero play, even in historic. And when it's not curated, and it's also you know a combination of all these disparate visions and all these different disparate priorities coming together... I think it makes it really hard for Historic to be a format to actually care about in a meaningful way. Yeah. Coupled with the fact that it doesn't really even change that much anymore. And it seems like more often than not, a new deck like might emerge every like couple sets, if that. Like Grease Fang feels like the newest deck to actually see some Historic play. But otherwise, it's a lot of the same over and over. And because it has like this hodgepodge and of, of different card designs and philosophies and, and products all coming together. I just feel like they lost the plot a little bit and Explorer can really bring new life into the arena platform. Just, you know, m- not just Pioneer and not just like this brand new ish format, but actually spending time in, in, in the application that wasn't as fun as it had been even a year ago. Yeah. What's weird about historic and this might be wrong on my part, but I feel like there's actually fewer options. 
like I feel like there used to be, you know, there used to be like a pretty darn good gruel deck and like rogues and things like that. And now I just feel like it's Mizzix Mastery. It's some kind of graveyard flashback style deck. It's a little bit of angels. Like I just feel like there's even fewer options of like the good decks because of the way that the concentration of cards has just sort of pushed itself to be like, yeah, you should be doing something with Mizzix Mastery. And they really aren't curating this format very strongly. Alchemy changes are not happening in some kind of as aggressive a manner as they claimed it would. And or, or in a fun way either. Like no. the, al- the alchemy changes, I don't think, contribute to historic. Jury's out if they even contribute to alchemy. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I think it's like you mentioned, Dave, that it's probably the best decision they could make, even like just given the platform and the resources that they have at the moment, right? Like, yeah, well, I'd, I'd certainly love to have seen like 10 pioneer cards be dropped along with this this announcement, but maybe that's not realistic. So I have a lot of hope, but I also have a lot of anxiety, like how they're going to roll this out, how fast they're going to roll this out. Is this going to be through anthologies that are going to have like five pioneer cards, five sort of historic e-cards and like some just garbage that no one's ever going to play? Uh, is it going to be like remastered packs where we have to drop some gold into this and get random stuff? That's what I don't know. Because like... Here's some of the like what I'd want. Here's what I'd want to see like as soon as possible for me to have more hope and more fun in the format. Because for me, I want this to mirror Pioneer as closely as possible as soon as possible. Yeah, mm-hmm. and like we need things like Elvish Mystic, Thing in the Ice, Dreadbore, Mutavault, Eidolon, Dig Through Time and Treasure Cruise, Kalidus, Nykthos, Abrupt Decay, Swift Spear, Shrapnel Blast. The, pl- the pain lands, insult artifacts, so Stan can have fun. And I mean, and <laughs> dare I say it, like Supreme Verdict, like that that's a missing piece here. And Dave, did you ever think you'd see the day where Shane's saying, we need Supreme Verdict, we need another Wrath. Supreme, Supreme Villa, like the hero we deserve, yeah. Y'all, Shane, you also miss Spell Queller. Yeah, I mean, that's not there, you're right. Um, and uh, what, Mausoleum Wanderer, I think, or is he? That's the one that I really want is Mausoleum Wanderer, honestly. Yeah. Is that not that's, that's not on arena? No, it's not. Wow. I mean, if we get some or all of those in the next few months, like that's going to feel really good, but I know we're not going to. I don't even I doubt we even get to have most of those cards by the fall, and I think Explorer is going to feel weird. It's going to feel like a pioneer adjacent format. I think it won't be like as broken and like you said Stan sort of samey and in my opinion bad to play as historic but i feel like it's not gonna let me practice pioneer necessarily it's gonna let me play a pioneer like format on arena which is going to hopefully be fun i mean it's gonna let you like you said practice pioneer ish in your bed before you go to bed and it's gonna let you do that you know in when you're hiding in the bathroom the train you know when i was i I was in my hot tub playing arena the other day on my ipad oh look at this a fun picture for that and like that that's what i'm gonna do this guy's got a. This guy's got an iPad. Yeah, exactly, and a waterproof case. I really think that as long as Explorer exists, you cannot conflate playing Explorer with Pioneer practice. You just can't. That, and that's that's a really problem can't. to me. Yeah, I don't think we know that for sure yet. I would say like we'll have to see how f- different things really are when it comes down to it. There's a chance that they, it's something that's very close to, to Pioneer, or that the decks that are good really are. Maybe they're mostly the same decks so they're mostly the same dynamics they're just not as powered up or something like that so i you know 
I, I think that there's a chance that it's still reasonably close. Now, there's probably going to be some a few decks that get unlocked that are like, well, we just have 12 of this card in this format, so this, and we don't have this yeah. answer card from Pioneer, so this is going to be good now. Yada, yeah. yada, yada. But And then, like, ultimately, I also have anxiety about, like Stan said, what is their dedication to this effort? Because like we we saw the concept of like these remastered sets sort of I mean it's essentially abandoned right and they are focusing on alchemy development these digital only mechanics and like I said earlier is like ways to better extract players from their money rather than making arena this paper like experience and now they're saying they're going to do that and so how long like if what if Explorer is only mildly popular are they going to shift gears again well I mean I have to say. I do think that this announcement is probably a little bit of an indication that people don't buy the digital only packs all that much. I mean, I, it's just a guess, you know what I mean? But I, I don't, I, I guess people probably aren't lining up to buy the alchemy packs. I mean, so it, it makes me wonder a little if part of their efforts are being directed that way anyway. Yeah, I agree. I will say that wizard's effort about turning Explorer into pioneer is one space where I am very cautiously optimistic because I think they've recognized how important Pioneer can be to the longevity of a fun paper format that people can latch on to. The last episode, maybe it was the first episode that Dom Harvey was on when we really talked about Pioneer. I think he truly nailed it, where he talked about how important Pioneer can be as a constructed gateway, because Standard is becoming increasingly digital and Modern being increasingly expensive. Pioneer is now becoming this, like, go-to place where someone can have their deck. And Mm -hmm. I think it's also very telling that they made Pioneer the first Pro Tour format in the new OP system. I think like they understand the format's potential as a way to retain players and keep them interested in buying cards and having Arena mirror that as much as possible is something that I think they recognize the long-term ceiling of that type of investment. Right on. So let's talk about some of the early decks that people will, will probably mess with. And I think we first do need to address, like we've been talking about, what's sort of off the table here. And Lotus Field is just missing tons of key cards. Uh, it's just not going to be playable. Jeskai Ascendancy has no Ascendancy. Insul Artifact has no Insul Artifact. No Spring Leaf from, no Shrapnel Blast. Stan, for is it Control? Does that just need Thing in the Ice to like exist? Like what, what else are you doing to like sort of put a clock on your opponent that early? and fit into your game plan. So in addition to Thing in the Ice, you also need stronger things to do with Narset. Oh, yeah. You know, that's like the other key angle of that deck is either Days Undoing or Collective Defiance. Otherwise, a lot of it is here. Treasure Cruise is missing, as you pointed out. The mana is basically all here. I think it actually is like entirely on Arena, so that's cool. So is it Control is close. Um, You don't have Collective Defiance or Days Undoing. Right, so when you talk about powerful things with Narset, you don't have you literally. Well, don't yeah, have those, th- two th- cards. those are the two things I'm referring yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, David. Yeah, and I, I think I'd also probably put like the Devotion decks in this category of just unplayable without Nykthos. Like I know there's other ways to ramp and make mana and things like that, but Nykthos is what really cracks these decks wide open into the busted territory from time to time. So until we have Nykthos, I don't really think we have a legitimate Devotion deck. So that's kind of what I think is sort of off the table right now in terms of their power level in Pioneer versus Explorer. 
but what's kind of suboptimal to to the to okay? And I'd say Burn is maybe okay. There's no Swiss beer, Eidolon, even Boros Charm. Spirits has no Spell Queller, no Mausoleum Wanderer, no Selfless Spirit. That might not just be there, but we do. You know, there's there's mono blue style ways to do that too. So uh, Rakdos Midrange, no Dreadbore, no Urborg, no 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 Kalidus. There are sort of replacements for some of those spells, and you don't necessarily need Urborg, but I don't know. I, I, I think Bedevil is not as good as Dreadbore. It's one more mana for, hmm. you know, it's slightly more versatile and instant, mm-hmm. but what are you going to do? Uh, Niv Delight has no Bring Delight, but you could do some kind of five-color Niv thing, I guess. Here's an interesting one, because Azorius Control is super powerful, perhaps the best deck in Pioneer, but here it's missing Supreme Verdict. That's really about it, but... It doesn't have any other four mana sweeper to make up for that. Like you could do, uh, what's the the three mana one that co- what costs three when you uh, hide it away essentially? Doomscar. Doomscar. You could do settle the wreckage. That's probably good enough. You can do like, shatter shatter the sky, right? Like that's that's one. And then there's also one in this set too. That's a four mana one that if someone has a multicolor permanent, they get to draw a card, but otherwise it's a four mana destroy all creatures. I forget what it's called, but... Azorius, in the absence of things like Supreme Verdict, could go Jeskai for Anger of the Gods, Deafening Clarion. There's that cycling one from Amon Kevermaster too. Like, we can have some Sweltering Suns. Thank you, yeah. They're just not as good as Supreme Verdict. But because we, you know what, because we see Jeskai and Azorius Control still be really effective in Historic because of the Pioneer cards more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, but they do have Wrath of God. Don't forget that. Yeah, I know. But I I just, so many of the other cards are present and really good. Like Teferi, Wandering Emperor, Narset, or Yorian are like really good, powerful cards that I think will find a shell that can support Control and, and these big walkers. I will tell you that I'm not really looking forward to trying to play around Settle the Wreckage again. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. it's never fun for me. Uh, Winota is missing a few key cards like Elvish Mystic and Voice of Resurgence, but I think there's a lot of ways to make this a busted deck, especially with the slightly lower power level of Explorer versus Pioneer. So those are decks that I think potentially have legs, uh, potentially might be great. And I think what's just already just pretty darn close is, is it Phoenix? It has the it's the non thing in the ice variant where it's just like is it Phoenix and a bunch of other spells doesn't have treasure cruise of course it also doesn't have uh, temporal trespass which yeah, is so you lose pretty much close, in every deck now you lose the dredge things but I think that I mean is it Phoenix does is it, is it Phoenix things and so I'm curious how close this will be in terms of performance the Grease Fang decks are all very similar if not direct ports. Into Explorer, Jund Food is a pretty direct port. Uh, it's not one of the top tier in terms of popularity decks, but I think there's quite a bit of power level in Jund Food. And then Rakdos Sack is essentially only missing Urborg and Shrapnel Blast if you play the, the Shrapnel Blast version like uh, Aspiring Spike and some other players do. So you'd mm. probably be more in the Meat Hook Massacre end of things. To this list, there's one thing I want to add, which is if we recall when Pioneer was first announced a couple years ago, it was described at the time as a place to revisit a lot of your favorite standard strategies and decks of the Pioneer era, and it fairly quickly moved way beyond that. I think Explorer has the potential to be a little closer to that type of vision of its standard greatest hits. And 
largely because the Explorer pool is so much smaller. And for that reason, I think that you can actually look at some of the most successful standard decks of this arena era and probably see some levels of success with, you know, Nia Adventures, Sultai Ultimatum, Allrun's Epiphany, these decks that were format defining for standard at the time, in some cases led to bannings because a lot of those cards are still Pioneer Legal. That might be an all right place to start as well without having to completely, you know, spend a ton of new cards because of your obsolete arena collection. I, I just don't anticipate that necessarily being the thing right right off the bat. Right on. I'm hopeful. Uh, I think that we're going to see essentially various analogs of most of the popular decks of Pioneer, besides like in terms of top tier Lotus Field and it Control, which just seem kind of out in most structures of those decks, if not all of them for like Lotus Field. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. What do you all think you want to play on on Tuesday, if you're gonna if you're gonna digitally sleeve something up, what are you gonna try to be playing? Two words: light pause. <laughs> see you later. I'll probably be playing auras for now, just to see what the format is like. I already have most of the cards from Historic. I'll just make a version of that and see see where it's at. Um, I think it has a reasonable possibility to be okay, even without core spirit dancer, and we'll just kind of see where it goes. You know, Pioneer doesn't have it, and it's a deck that comes up occasionally there still. So. And that's just where I'll start. And then we'll see where it goes from there, because I think that deck would be cheap for me to complete. That's the main thing, is I want to get some games in with a deck I already have. Yeah, like, don't burn, like, 20 rares day one. I'm not trying to min-max at day one, exactly. Yeah, I, I might look at Mono Blue Tempo, or even, like, Blue-Green Flash. I'm, I'm curious to see what the go-to tempo deck is of Explorer. That's probably where I'll start, and try to have fun. It could be Mono Blue Spirits, honestly. That that deck, I think, is pretty close without Mausoleum. It doesn't have Mausoleum Wanderer, but I think it has most of everything else. I think Rakdos Sack has me the most excited because I can just legitimately practice the lines and the gameplay between it and Pioneer. And that's something that I think would be really helpful for making the transition from digital to paper with that deck because I'm hoping that one of these days I'll have a good opportunity to play that deck in paper. There's a lot of triggers. There's a lot of things to think about. Uh, I'm also hopeful that Rakdos midrange is decent to good. Like Bedevil, as I said, is not my favorite replacement for Dreadbore, but I'm hopeful that maybe in the slightly lower power level of the format, Bedevil or some, or you know something else, some other kind of removal spell is going to be good enough. So, all right, we spent a, a lot of time uh, on that more than I expected, but you know, it's an exciting development. So let's get out of here. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back into the dive down. We're going to be talking about getting better at magic. So stay with us. Shane, Stan, I want to talk to you about something important today. I want to talk to you about an art that I think is really underappreciated <laughs> in our world today. And that's the art of combining and coming up with original flavors and or smells that people enjoy. Whoa. All right. What makes you think about this? Well, I happen to have one of the worst products I've ever bought here on my desk next to me, taste-wise. And I think it's because of an unfortunate flavor concept that became poorly executed and is really heinous. And that is Good and Gathers <laughs> Cucumber Mint Sparkling Water Unsweetened. It sounds like it should be good. It sounds like it should be a refreshing. I, I like the concept. It sounds like it should be a refreshing kind of light taste. And what really happened is that they really overshot fresh cucumber somehow and made it pickle. 
in this Target, this Target branded sparkling water that I bought. And um, you know, it's a weird thing to bring up. It's really, it tastes like pickles with mint in it. It's really, it's unbelievably terrible. I don't know why I'm drinking it. The, the I, you know, I bring it up though because Target, get at us. Our friend, yes, Good and Gather sponsor our podcast. Target sponsor our podcast. But our actual sponsor, Will at Barrister and Man, is someone who has always impressed me with his passion for the art of the fragrance. Am I right? right? When we talked to him the first time, he was just so into finding, researching these kind of past sense, sense of different eras, trying to bring them back in a way that did honor to them, but also built on them and coming up with his own things. And I got to tell you, every single one that I've gotten so far, even though not everything that I do is heavily fragranced, it's just a real absolute banger as far as I'm concerned. You know, I like I've mentioned on here, I'm a Seville man and... Um, you know, I like that it has kind of notes of Old Spice, so I smell like an old man, but it's kind of a fresher version of that still. Shane, I know you're a big fan of the Passa Flora, I think is yeah, the... Yeah, Passa Flora the, is awesome. I did some wave. I took a, took a shave this morning, used some waves. I always love a, a waves day. Yeah. And so I've just always been impressed by how much Will just loves his job and loves putting this stuff out in the world for us to enjoy and really is very good at something that I think people don't realize is a true art as much as you know, being a chef is or something like that. For sure. And, and he crafts the stuff too. Like it's not right. just like he's, yeah, he's always, he's in the weeds on it and it's awesome. It's about the concept and the execution, right? Like Target, pretty good concept, but execution leaves me tasting pickle water. If you want something better than pickle water, if you want, if you. <laughs> that is, doesn't make you smell like pickle water. Yeah. A low bar to clear, uh, but Will clears many higher bars in the, his, the artwork that he does over at Barrister and Man, you can use Coupon code the dive down twenty twenty two over at Barrister and Man M A double N for fifteen percent off your first order there. And there's stuff for shaving, there's stuff for your body, there's stuff for your, your home if you just want to spray smells around. But yeah, we we love the stuff. We love working with Will, and we appreciate you all checking it out. And we're back. Really exciting episode. A topic that we've been thinking about for weeks because Cody, our, our Diamond Dust Rare patron, has given us this idea for a while, or gave us, gave us this idea a while ago. And as I mentioned earlier, it's a pretty esoteric topic, how to get better. And I think that journey is different for each and every player at different skill levels, in different formats, and with different ambitions. But what we're really going to try to do today is talk about some concepts that I think are easy to ignore, easy to skip, easy to forget to engage with actively, because so frequently magic can be a very passive experience, in part because of all the digital ways to play it or playing it friendly at a kitchen table. It's not always within the player's best interest or necessarily the most fun way to approach the game to think about it very diligently and carefully. And we're not necessarily saying that you have to do that for every game, but what we're going to try to do is talk about some of the very specific details that you can start thinking about and probably should start thinking about if one of your ambitions moving forward is to improve your game of magic. And these are broad ideas that will come with some specific and varied scenarios that may help illustrate them. But ultimately, what we want you to do is apply this thinking to your game as often as you can and see how much it changes the outcome and really how much it changes what decisions you're making that may have felt like 
weren't particularly important decisions before, but are going to start snowballing into huge decisions moving forward. And everything we're going to talk about today comes back to one big umbrella principle that really introduces this topic. And we're going to talk about how you are going to play more magic on your path to being a better magic player. Yeah. Because you're not going to improve a magic through one weird trick that you see at the bottom of a, a random blog you find online. You're not going to become a better magic player because you catch this white whale of a deck that you've just been searching for for years and finally clicks for you and it's the one thing that you're unbeatable with. It takes practice. It takes a certain style of thinking. And that's what we're outlining today. Yeah, it almost feels like a bit of a cop-out to start with that. Like, oh, you just play more magic and you'll get better. I mean, I was typing in the show notes this week and I kept coming back to this idea that, look, this all really snowballs from playing more games and more matches. But I I do want to note that, like anything, there's a lot of nuance to like the why and the how you are playing more magic and how your approach to playing more magic leads to you actually getting better. Because you can, I have, played hundreds and hundreds of like best of one mono red historic on the arena ladder. And that's likely helpful at like figuring out play patterns and small edges in that deck. But I will make the argument that I think the time spent doing that is much less effective than most people would actually like if their goal is to get better at magic. And I think we'll get into a lot of those nuances later. But I wanted to get at this like concept that I think practice with the goal of learning something is crucial for growth in every arena of your life, not just magic. I think it's about being present. It's about paying attention. It's actually thinking through things, looking at the results of choices you made rather than being on autopilot. And I think that's really important for uh, all of the points that we're going to make throughout the rest of this episode. It's an interesting point, Shane. I think that if you think about like a metaphor, like another way to think about what you just said, like learning with the goal of working with the goal of learning something, it's sort of like the difference between having knowledge and knowing a thing, right? Like it's like the difference between deeply understanding something and knowing trivia about it, right? It's like, okay, we, well, a lot of us are really good at recall and things like that, but deeply engaging with the game makes you with that goal in mind makes you actually gain mastery of something as opposed to just like having a depth of factual understanding. I think. I'm, and I'm excited to explore this concept further. I want to kick us off with a hot take. Ooh, I love a hot take, especially in one where we're talking about getting better at something. That's right. I, this is my opinion, the thing that everyone should be working towards to be a better Magic player. And I think once you get better at this one thing, everything else starts to open up and you start to see all the different avenues that you can apply your, imp- apply your improved skill and thinking toward. Didn't you just tell me there's not just one thing? But this one thing has so many sub things. Oh, sub things. <laughs> okay, perfect. So the, the key umbrella, in my opinion, and I, I'm, I'm eager to hear an initial reaction, is learning to play both sides of the board actively. And I think this is the thing that separates average players from great players are the ones who know how to literally play for the opponent and understands why the opponent is doing everything they're doing and uses those game actions and that information to inform and all of your decisions. And likewise, even infer things as specific as the cards in a person's hand. Yeah. This is like one of the most important things that has stuck with me since like 2015 
when, and this makes me think, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's 90% of what you're saying here, which is like LSV, unlimited resources, and episode 273, have a plan. Uh, and what I remember him saying here was have a plan, respect that your opponent has a plan, and then alter your plan to disrupt theirs when possible. And that level three, understanding their plan is is essential to being able to disrupt it and play around it and work within the confines of the game of two people having a mutual game plan defined by the structure of their deck and how they draw through it and play with the cards they draw. So let's talk about how you can actually do this and work toward this. And it's going to take some steps. And step one, in my opinion, is to start making inferences about your opponent's decisions. And you're going to find that sometimes these are wrong. But you need to make those guesses and then see if your hypotheses are correct or incorrect. There was this moment in our bonus episode with Eli Cassis after he won the Pro Tour where he recapped a line that he took in a alchemy match because he read the mana and potential plays in an opponent's hand based on the first couple of land drops that they made. And just seeing the land drops that they made gave Ely information about what opponent probably has in their hand and what they're probably working towards. And maybe he could have been wrong, but it turned out that he was right and it defined the tournament for him. But I think taking that step to like make guesses is one of the things that you need to start doing to execute what Shane and, and you know our friend Luis are talking about, which is respecting your opponent's plan. Because at the end of the day, you can start making guesses about specific cards pretty frequently, especially in constructed formats. Yeah, I, I actually think you can in limited formats, by the way, but that's a different different story for a different day. It's almost easier to do it in limited formats, I think. But um, the the one concept I want to touch on here, if in case you know you want another way to think about this idea of thinking about your opponent's plans, is in poker there's a concept known as ranges which is where you sort of um, probabilistically think about your opponent's behaviors and the position that they're in at the table to try to pin down the cards that they could have in their hand and why they would behave a certain way where they're sitting because of the cards that they have in their hand. And this is like a fundamental skill to to poker. And it's actually a highly um, documented, studied area so much so that part of the way that poker is played now is about breaking through that convention of um, the way that ranges are thought about right now so it's sort of like okay you can't be too predictable in the way you behave in poker so you have to sort of like add some randomness in your game but that's another story for another day in magic i think that what you're talking about is if you don't try i, I don't think it's about guessing what's your what's in your opponent's hand like with precision because like you said, sometimes you're wrong. I think what you want to do is try to challenge yourself to go with their mana and the things that they've done right now and what I know about their deck, they could be doing A, B, C, right? I think you should always try to think about multiple paths that could be happening at the same time because that will, I think that'll challenge you a little bit more to go, okay, if they have A, they're going to do this next and that'll confirm A. If mm. then I do this. If they have B, then they'll do this next and then I can do this. And then you can kind of like think it through that, that next level where you, you can pin them down a little bit more precisely without just saying, ah, my guess based on it is this one thing. 
you know, I think that you know well enough to be able to make multiple guesses, and that that's that's the true thing. And then you can say, well, how likely it is is it for them to have this combination of things in their hand versus this combination of things in their hand? And that's where you get into a little bit more kind of like draw draw percentages and stuff like that. Yeah, and I think sometimes these reads and guesses are easier to make. There are cards like Counterspell, Violent Outburst, Collected Company that you can sort of see from across the room. Likewise, Urza's Mine, Celestial Colonnade, Simic Growth Chamber, these tell you exactly what your opponent is playing towards and capable of on turn one. But most matchups aren't this transparent. So I think it's important to apply this style of thinking to every game, especially when it's not an obvious signal because someone left a certain type of mana up. Yeah. I mean, don't you think in modern, just as a, as a little digression, that you can, if you've played enough modern, you can tell what deck you're against on turn one almost every game don't you think like it's really it's really close i think there's a lot and certainly by turn two you'll know every deck that you're playing against in in modern if you study the format what do you think stan so here's my nitpick to that when i'm playing crash cade or living end i will sometimes sequence my early land drops so that my opponent thinks i'm on murktide because they share certain lands Mm mm-hmm And I think you can make those types of plays too to mess with your opponent who may presumably be trying to think about what you're on because so many decks like share resources or even share cards. Yeah, I I think it's a combination of card plus land in play, of course. And once you get there, you can can zero in pretty fast. And then companions, of course, give you a bunch of information in the rare case that people have companions that aren't Yorian now, for example. Especially at the tournament level. Like in leagues, you still might get like the random like turn one, tapped godless shrine or something like that and you're like well, what's what's going on here and then you're like oh i got the buy <laughs> uh, yeah i think that that's uh, that's that's really astute i think that that is something that is is really important and i think there's a lot of like you said there's a lot of like sub points about you know in making making the right decisions based on your opponent's decisions and i think there's a lot of thought that goes into that unfortunately or perhaps fortunately here's step two about playing both sides of the boards do the math. There's so much literal math and counting that you can do in various matchups and various games that I think are critical to identifying time left in the game and the paths you need to find to victory. Yeah. Dave mentioned you know poker earlier. I think a lot of the, the best magic players over the years have been very math focused individuals i've been thinking a lot about math recently in my play which i think has been influenced by flesh and blood playing because a lot of the process of flesh and blood is more immediate in terms of the math of the game where it's like what do you give up by swinging with 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 a what what do you what do i give up by attacking with something instead of blocking with something and am i playing magic I'm looking at my decisions as more math-based decisions. And I think that I'm coming out a little bit more ahead recently where it's like, what am I giving up by swinging with three small attackers in my model red deck to lose two of them to blocks? And then I get two damage in now. And where it's like, wait a second, this play I'm making is like trading down on mana really poorly. I'm, I'm using the, my mana resources differently. Like how could I, could I do this in a different way? And because the game is gated effectively by the amount of mana 
that you have access to over the course of the game and the number of cards you have to cast with that mana or abilities that you have to activate with that mana, things like that. So I've been finding it really beneficial to think about those two resources a lot more recently in my play where I'm like throwing things I'm like throwing things against my opponent a lot less liberally. And I'm kind of thinking about like, if I'm not getting, if I'm going to get two damage out of two mana, isn't it better that I just hold this back for now? And I set up for a longer game where maybe this is better as a blocker as opposed to an, as opposed to an attacker and things like that. I, I like this, this exercise that you've, you've let us down chain. And what I'd like to do is actually provide three slightly more specific scenarios with matchups and cards that I think people may be familiar with because I think this can help us start to talk about the different ways we do math or can do math in a variety of games of magic. Okay? Here's the scenario one. And you'll notice, my co-hosts, that I kept some of this stuff intentionally vague because I want to have this conversation with you. Okay, wait. And then the listener can follow along at home and, and play along too and shout at the radio what they would do. Three scenarios. The first one starts with turn one hand disruption against burn. So let's say you play Swamp, Inquisition of Kozilek, you're still at 20 life, and you see in your opponent's hand two lands, Eidolon, and Fort Lightning Bolt. What does that hand tell you, and what sort of decisions are you trying to make? And again, remember, we're talking about math here, so that's maybe a little bit of a hint of what I'm trying to get to it. I guess you can kind of count the amount of damage they have in hand. That's kind of like, the, that's what I do when I'm playing as Burn and would play against them is like, what do I have immediate access to guaranteed? And this is what, uh, 12, 13, 14, probably 15, 16 damage in hand. Well, first off, you're going to take one the Eidolon in this in this situation so oh, that yeah. knocks down the amount of the amount of mana there are the amount of damage they have against you it also say says to me i mean look lots of ins and outs here but this is not a good burn hand and i would be <laughs> thrilled that they kept it it's not a good burn hand you need yeah, creatures. No one drop yeah you don't have a one drop and so they don't have a if they can brick pretty hard off of here with just 12 to, with four lightning bolts in hand so it gives you a lot of time, especially if you have additional hand disruption, to be able to mess them up even more. And you take their one creature and you kind of go from there. I would I would feel like, A, I would feel pretty good about it. I would say they don't have a good plan to kill me fast in burn with a deck that's with a hand that ends up being two yeah. la- two lands and four lightning bolts. It's that, a slower that's hand, what it will yeah. tell me. Mm-hmm. Dave, can you th- so first of all, Shane, I love that you counted the damage. I think that's so important. And I remember the like the first time I did that and was like, oh, wait, I know exactly how much damage I'm at. And and really, like, what I think that hand kind of tells us, like, yes, it's 12 damage of burn. You're basically starting at eight life in a way, right? That's like kind of the clock you're working with to start. But Dave, you said that you're definitely taking the idol on. Can you think of any scenarios why you might not? No. So I don't care if I have creatures. I don't care if I have, if I'm shadow in this one. I'm fine with that. You know what I mean? I'm just going to I'm going to slow down on my fetch lands and my shocks and stuff like that a little bit since they're going to have to throw bolts on, at me, but I I Eidolon is so good against so many decks in modern that I'm taking I'm taking Eidolon. like that's but yeah. Yeah. So here here here's where I would think about it too. Eidolon, you're taking it because it threatens the most amount of damage. Mm-hmm. Cuz it's it's in scales of 2, right? Lightning bolt is always scales of 3. Eidolon, like, bare minimum, it's only doing two damage to you. And at most, it's doing four, six, eight. And I think, let's say we're playing mono black full of Inquisitions and, and cheap removal. You can keep that Eidolon to just two damage. Yeah. And then take the burn spell because that's a guaranteed three. 
So if you know they're going to play Eidolon and you can immediately Fatal Push it, you're actually going to take less damage than if you let them keep 12 damage of burn. And now you're potentially starting at not 8 life, but like 9 or 10. Yeah, I mean, I can see the argument there too. Here's the problem with that. In my mind, what happens in this situation if you don't take Eidolon, and we don't have to get super deep on this, but it, it, if you don't take Eidolon here, it's the up upside potential of them, of Eidolon be able to do so much more damage becomes a lot more problematic. Because what you're assuming, too, is that they're not going to draw a different creature yes. that you end up having to use your creature removal on for some reason instead, and then they drop Eidolon, and then you die. You know what I mean? Because it ends up doing six damage to you instead. Yeah, the effect so, of Eidolon lockout late game yeah, or something. which is bad, especially with all the... with starting at eight life because of a bunch of lightning bolts. The other thing is that, you know, this is... Like I said, this isn't fast, so they, you know, they only have so much mana that they can use to lightning bolt you essentially and if they're going to do that every turn like i'm kind of happy with that if they're doing that instead of creatures and eidolon also attacks like don't forget that that's another reason you have to you have to use creature removal on it but again if they draw another threat then sometimes you get in, kind of in a, in a corner there or if they draw a second eidolon then you're like what you know so well then you've lost and then burned did the thing right yeah mathematical can i give you guys one more scenario yeah Tron plays a turn three forest and casts Oblivion Stone. So we got Tron land, another Tron land, a forest, and an O-Stone. You control a couple creatures, but you don't have good interaction for Tron itself. Mm -hmm. Depending on how big your creatures are and the potential interaction that you could draw, what does the Tron board tell you about their position? Well, they play a turn three forest, which makes me think that they're not a great Tron opponent. <laughs> That's my number one. Uh, the Oblivion Stone, what, so like if I play a turn three Oblivion Stone, that means I'm planning, I'm not in a great spot because you can now make decisions based on what I've played, right? Where it's like, you can play to the board, you can attack me and make me force me to pop the Oblivion Stone. So you, you probably think I'm on the back foot. I didn't make Tron and I'm playing a defensive tool rather than a proactive one. Dave, is there anything you would add? I'm going to set this one out. <laughs> Never played against an O-Stone? Yeah. So, yeah, so the thing about Ostone that's interesting is that, you know, as Shane kind of joked with, like, they don't have Tron, right? Because they, they're playing the forest there. So assuming they can't make, you know, seven or eight mana on turn four, that means they're like two turns away from actually activating that Ostone and sweeping your board, potentially. Like, assuming they're just playing forest for the rest of, of that game, because it, it costs five mana to activate the Ostone. When you have that type of foresight of where they are on a curve based on what they're threatening to activate on the board, I think that also is going to start informing like how aggressive you need to be versus what you can or cannot cast. And I think sometimes a, a Tron opponent may cast an O-Stone, and that can make you reticent to play cards into the O-Stone, when in fact, in this particular scenario where they don't have seven man on turn three and they're trying to slow roll uh, an o-stone maybe they're trying to bait you by playing things into it or maybe it's just like the only actual meaningful game action that they have i think that's going to tell you like when you need to pump the gas because they're slow down and if they had access to tron mana they would have done it sooner yeah so that they can threaten o-stone a little bit more quickly so really what this is this is math to inform you when you actually get to be brave and make them have the answer because right now they're they're pretending like they have an answer when in fact they're 
probably top decking for a way to activate it. And if we get down to the nitty gritty here, like one of the things you can think about too is like, let's say they have the two two mana Tron pieces. They have mine and power plant and forest, right? Let's say they top deck a Sylvan Scrying, right? And they have to use two of that mana to then go get the tower. Then they will have access to five mana. Let's say they already have... So like you can think about like what leads them to have the mana that they would get there. And so like that's one of those things too where it's like, okay, they don't already have Tron, but and they didn't use a Sylvan Scrying to get to it already, or maybe they didn't, or did they did they not have access to green mana yet? Does that mean now that they have the forest down that then they can then play the Sylvan Scrying? And so it's really important to think about the mana that they'll have access to with certain game actions and certain spells that get cast. And so that's something to keep an eye on because like Stan said, this is that's where the that's where I think a big thing of math gets into when someone has access to different amounts of mana on different amounts of lands. And Stan, one of the things you mentioned here is like just understanding the other player's plan. And I think that also requires understanding the metagame. Like you mentioned, Dave, it's like if you play enough modern, you're going to know what people are doing. And you have to understand their game plan, which is sort of like a catch-22, which kind of gets into that playing more thing. Because like the fortunate and unfortunate reality is like you to understand your opponent's plan, you have to learn that through experience whether that's playing as your opponent's deck, whether that's playing against that deck enough to have learned the same. Uh, it's just time in the trenches. But the fortunate part is you get to play more magic. <laughs> and so you, know, you can get a lot by just understanding deck construction. Pay attention to deck lists. Listen to the breakdown, your favorite podcast, the dive down. Uh, you can watch events and leagues. You, that's, that's not going to inform you quite as much as just jamming matches in a thoughtful manner and so i think that sort of is is the essential here which is hopefully fun so last couple of things since we were talking about math a lot and I, this isn't necessarily on the understanding both sides of the board side but it kind of is you know shane intimated earlier we talked a little bit about it with poker you know we did an episode a long time ago i i forget what it was even called was it called like math and math, math magic land or something like that or where we talked about common odd scenarios that you should study and feel like you kind of have at your fingertips and using a hypergeometric calculator and all those kind of things that we've talked about in the past and people talked about with just knowing the basic probability of what, you know, how to think about. I have eight of car- eight cards in my deck right now that will help me win, that, that I will win if I draw right now. What's the percentage that I can do that this turn, the next turn, or the next turn, like depending on how many draws I get. Knowing those kind of probabilities can help you a lot. The flip side is knowing those probabilities for opponent will also help you a lot. So you can sit there and go, geez, this deck, I know that this deck only runs six removal spells, right? Like six destroy creature effect removal spells, for example. Sitting there and going, how many cards have they seen? How many have I, have I seen already? And how many are left to be drawn can help you a little bit with understanding how likely you are to be facing down that third removal spell of theirs when you push all in on an attack or something like that. So I think that spending a little bit of time with math of that kind can help you as well, specifically, you know, drawing into a four of drawing into an eight of that kind of stuff are pretty easy numbers to memorize i think so that's the other kind of math i would think about a little bit here if you're thinking about math in general you know what mana is available what life is available what probabilities do people have of drawing certain cards like all of those different things count to add up to 
the mathiness of the game. Yeah. And some of these positions are easier to calculate than others. Like when you're playing against Death Shadow, you can quickly remember that every fetch land is three damage. Every street wraith is, is two damage. Other ones are harder. As you practice more of the easy ones, the harder ones will start to fall into place over time too. So let's talk about something really fun, near and dear to my heart at least. Hello fun. Let's talk about identifying the decks that you prefer and excel at. I'm at this point now where it's just like, I'm not even going to going to try whatever the best deck is in every format, because I'm not convinced that there's always going to be one necess- specific best deck. And I, I would go so far as to say that the data that we present on this podcast every month in our monthly report helps support that. You know, even when Luris was in Modern and we were talking about you know, what's going up, what's going down month over month, who's winning the most challenges. Like, it was neck and neck between Shadow and, and, and Hammer. But there were other decks winning tournaments. Luris gets banned. We see, like, 10 top eights uh, with eight different winners. And I think it's really important to remember that sometimes the deck that you are best at is the one where you are going to get more edges than blindly picking up whatever won the Modern Challenge last week or whatever is the first deck listed on the meta game page of MTG Goldfish. Yeah. I mean, we're casual spikes, right? And like, I think that none, most of us are not going to be able to play the best deck to its highest level of capability without a lot of reps and understanding and practice, right? I think that at the highest level of play, I think people are able to pivot a little bit more agilely to play the best deck simply because it's the best deck that might give them the best chance to win. But I think, you know, we're all casual spikes here. And I think that uh, I've, you know, I heard Spike stay on stream recently where it's like, you know, ask yourselves the following questions when you're play testing. Like, am I having fun? Am I learning? Am I learning to pilot it proficiently? Is there a deck that I'm playing against that I think is more interesting to me? Because I think that's really important. Because like, just because a website told me that like a deck has a 54% win rate, like if I'm not having fun, I'm not going to want to play the number of matches required to see the difference between it and a 51% win rate deck that I like playing a lot more. Because like this is a game. And you have to have fun to want to play that game. And playing more is a big part of getting better. And so playing a deck you like that at least isn't truly bad is going to do a (laughs) lot more for you than trying to jam your head against getting really good with KCI or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Belcher was the thing I was thinking about when you said KCI. I was like, I, I will never pick up Belcher. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we bear, I, we we even talked about it when like the the new versions, Oops All Spells versions, or came out. We didn't even play it when that. We all watched videos and just talked about the videos. Uh, establishing that this was a new archetype but like it's just not who any of us are and so with the time that we have to play magic you know i think in the time that you have to play magic you really should sit down and assess what you think is fun about the game and really just be honest like hey maybe you're just never gonna like playing blue white control and maybe or maybe you're never gonna like playing combo or maybe even right here okay yeah i know or maybe you know like me or somebody who ends up around these kind of tempo-y decks all the time. Like, you know, Prowess was a tempo deck, and Shadow was a tempo deck, kind of. And also Murktide, I think, sometimes is a tempo deck, depending on on what gameplay experiences you value. And so I keep ending up in this zone of modern without really realizing at first that they're decks that have similar play styles, you know? And um, I just think that you'll get more out of it if you 
practice that path of mastery was something that you feel comfortable with because they really are for as much as people say that magic is like a repetitive experience or that decks feel the same. Sometimes there really is a lot of differentiation between plans, primary plans that decks have. It's, it's about as wide as you can imagine for any game really. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're not here to just say that it's okay to have that preference. I think it's important to have that preference Yeah, because what we also see time and again in results that we not infrequently break down is that quote unquote tier two decks win tournaments because someone knows how to play them really, really well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the best definition of tier two, I think for me is like the one where it's like decks that don't have the overt power level of tier one, but can be tacked and exist and do well against the existing field. Like they're not just a little bit worse. They're a little bit different. And right. they're tunable in different ways. And I think we see that a lot in Magic. And maybe it's like, you know, a deck that doesn't have, like, the efficient primary game plan, but has, like, strong disruptive capabilities, like Yawgmoth, right? Or it has its own plan that's maybe just a little bit slower, but it's reliable. And they're doing something to disrupt their opponent at the same time. Or it's, like, a deck that's maybe a turn slower, but fewer people are prepared for it because it's maybe a little bit less popular, like Dredge in you know random dredge weekend or random living end weekend or even like burn people can be less prepared for that and i think that that's important to like realize that there's a lot of ways to win a game of magic and a round of magic totally and even though dave as you put it like there are decks that we are not going to play if you're fortunate that you know someone with a deck or you have a rental account don't overlook the potential benefit of just trying a game with some random crazy stuff, including, in this case, experimenting with decks that you potentially hate, because that's also going to, in the long run, help inform how you can play both sides of a matchup. Yeah, it's a funny kind of bridge you're trying to cross here where you want to say, lean into your preferences and become a master of your preferences. But at the same time, you want to say, be broad-based and have as many experiences with the, with as many different decks as you can. And I, I think it's, it's kind of what Shane sat down or talked about at the very beginning of this is that when you sit down to play a game of magic and you are trying to put effort into learning how to get better, right? Your mindset needs to be different than probably when you're trying to sit down and win a tournament, even with something like that, which really should be, it's not practice anymore. Like you're trying, if you're being someone who's trying to get to that level, you're trying to push forward with the the best, uh, the best parts of you that you have as a player at that point in time. And so, you know, on like a, if you have like a Friday night where you're like, well, I want to play some magic, but I'm kind of tired of my favorite deck, you know, I'll, let's fire up Titan and give that a try. I mean, it, it is sort of why we started one of the facets of why we started the show, I guess was when mana traders started, we realized that we could test out different decks. It would give us stuff to talk about from different perspectives. And that's the mechanism that we've used over the years to gain more experience with things that we would never play <laughs> Titan and kind of go from there. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's a, it's an important thing to balance for sure. Yeah. Lean into the stuff you love. Don't overlook the stuff you hate. You don't have to play a league with every deck that you hate, but don't ignore the fact that there may be some value in just like getting a rep in with it so you know what it can do. This next topic, I feel like can be an entire episode and we're just going to try to condense it to about 10 minutes. Yeah, and Cody actually asked us to do an episode just about this topic as well. So when we put together this Patreon, I think it's great that we got this topic into this episode for him too. Yeah, and it's important. And that is know why you should or shouldn't mulligan. 
Duh, mulliganing. <laughs> it's so scary. Shane does it too much. Dave does it too little. Stan never has. <laughs> Why mulligan? I like all these cards. They're, I put them in my deck for a reason, even if I have seven yeah. lands. Yeah, totally. I, that means I'm only drawing gas off the top, right? The math yeah. checks out. <laughs> I think mulliganing is, is both one of the scariest and hardest decisions that you can make in a game, especially if you're choosing between a playable hand versus pitching it for a more optimized hand. Oh, yeah, and there's so much to that, Stan. Like, there's just so much because, like, knowing what playable versus optimized even is, what that means in a particular format or, like, the speed of the format or the power level of what you think you're, how fast you think your opponent can beat you. It's, there's so many things that go into this. I think even one thing, though, that helps hear a lot is, you know, somewhat. Uh, neon lights in our chat. Aaron just said, "Mulling is easy if you don't have Tron. You mull done." I think that that is a great it's a great encapsulation of what the real strategy is, which is like I can't tell you the number of times I've really sat down with a deck when I was trying out for the first time and I didn't really know what I was supposed exactly. to exactly what my opening hand was even supposed to look like. Yes, right. And so I think the number one thing that you should know is <laughs> no. Like, have an idea of what your ideal hand looks like in a generic matchup, right? And then go down from there. Yeah, and, and I think some of the ways you do that is by asking yourself a series of questions. What's the best play that this hand can actually execute? You know, if, if, if you're holding a Narset and a Days Undoing in three lands, it's obvious. But they're not usually, the answers aren't usually that obvious. So taking the time to ask that question of yourself and start to plot out where you exist on the curve, what you can draw to potentially make your hand stronger will help inform if you're playing an optimized hand or just a, quote, playable one. Sometimes it's also talk, asking yourself about the risk versus reward of the hand that you're keeping. You know, if I draw a land, then I can combo off on turn three. If I draw a chromatic sphere, I can get Tron on turn three. But sometimes if I don't get lucky, and then I don't have Tron on turn three, and what is this deck doing if I'm not getting Tron until four or five? I think... Along those lines, just asking yourself, what's my plan for the first three turns? You know, I think this episode has been kind of playing with modern in, in, in the crosshairs. And I think those first three turns in modern are especially critical because it's a format of razor thin margins. Every deck is capable of doing something super powerful. And even if we're not at the point yet where we're playing both sides of the board and we're respecting your opponent's plan, you got to start by knowing your own plan. And anything past turn three is sometimes the long game because we have no shortage of decks that can close out on turn three. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is very specific to modern, but it's the defining feature of the format, really, I think, at this point. Yeah. And, and likewise, you got to know what you're building towards if the game does go long. Like, what, it, what am I capable of with this hand or with my potential draws if I'm going to be in turn four or five or beyond maybe i'm playing against blue white control and those games will go turn till like turn 10 sometimes and knowing what you are capable of both in hand or in deck is is i think critical to help define like what's a keepable hand versus what's a playable hand let me illustrate two examples yeah, of yeah. hands that are are keepable versus playable right historic mono green elves i think is is a really easy one to help illustrate this point let's say you open a hand that's got three lands, a couple elvish archdruid, that's the three mana that, that taps for Gaia's Cradle, a collected company, and then another three mana lord, Imperius Perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This hand is trash. Yeah, yeah. it's not on plan. It's an auto mall, right? It, it, I mean, it's not, not on plan. Like, you got 
powerful lords, you got collected company, you can literally cast all the spells in your hand, but it's just not explosive. It's not optimized. It's just playable. Yeah. The best thing this deck can do is like play an Arch Druid on turn two and a Coco on turn three and sometimes even a, a Crater Hoof on turn four. And and this hand doesn't get you to any of those scenarios. Yeah. So like if we're going back to kind of even the fundamental of know your deck's game plan, because we're not even talking about understanding your opponent and how fast they can be moving and what kind of disruption they can have for you. This is just not on your game plan. This is not level one respecting your own deck's way of winning and way of gaining advantage going back to one of you know another classic patreon uh top tier episode uh from from jake uh, you know how do how do you understand advantage in this game and the way that your deck develops advantage uh this is not how elves is doing it yeah i think this is one of those classic hands where it's like i'm gonna feel bad if i maul this and i draw into a one lander now mm-hmm. the way that mulligans work now you are less likely to do that because you know you get to look at seven still, but this is a hand that is scared to lose as opposed to one that's trying to win, right? If you keep this, it's because you're afraid of, you're trying to not lose as opposed to winning. Scared to Got it. Title? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, let's let's say even in the world where I'm on the draw and I have a once upon a time in, in when that when that was legal, that's still a dicey keep you know what i mean where it's like well what if i draw i can once upon a time into like a mana dork and then that gets me somewhere yeah i mean that's a that's a weird example to cite just because i i would probably keep that with once time once upon a yeah. time how dare you bring that up that's effective <laughs> <mana dork. laughs> yeah because yeah once upon a time is literally whatever you want it to be Good also card. it breaks my heart to hear about once upon a time so let's please don't Maybe maybe they'll make Once Upon a Time Explorer legal. <laughs> yeah, maybe they'll make a fixed version. They'll call it Twice Upon a Time, and it'll cost extra. I don't know. So yeah, don't play scared to lose. Think about what your what your hands are capable of, because chances are, with that elves scenario, like if you pitch it, you're more likely to draw a better hand than you are a worse hand. In my experience, with hundreds of reps with elves. All right, you said you had another example for us, another scenario. Sure. Um, this one is a little headier. You're playing with blue-white control. Your opening hand is Celestial Colonnade, Basic Plane, Teferi Time Raveler, Prismatic Ending, Shark Typhoon, Supreme Verdict, and Opt. Hmm. Game one on the play. Keeper Mall. Is it is this is this also 2016? Because I have Celestial Colonnade in my deck or Instead of Hall of the Storm Giants, or who likes to play Celestial Colonnade? You got to play Celestial Colonnade. All right. I mean, I don't know. Like, for, for let's just go with my gut, which is like, uh, am I running? How many lands am I running in this deck? Like twenty eight. You know, t- between twenty three and twenty five. Sure. So I, I guess I would plan on drawing three three lands on my next what, five turns or something like that. I don't know. Like, I, I don't know about keeping two landers with blue white control. You guys tell me. Dave, do you have a knee jerk reaction to this game? I'd probably bin it. Honestly, just because it seems kind of oafy, yeah. but especially because I don't have an untapped blue source, so I can opt on turn one. That's that's the deal killer for me. Is that I like I, I would keep this if I had an unta- if I had a hollowed fountain instead of a celestial colonnade. I think because then I can opt, and that that's where my mind's at. And you could yeah. cast prismatic, and you could like there's a lot of options there. Yeah, yeah, I I think Dave, you nailed it. It, it is tricky because it's tempting to think that you can quickly and easily convert, if not the opt that shark typhoon into a land. But then what you're not doing is threatening counterspell on turn two because you know you don't have it, but opponent doesn't. Right. You know, you have to get a little lucky to to 
actually cast Teferi at that point. Even though you're not unlikely to get it down on turn three, you have to literally convert other cards into the cards you need to actually play on plan. The thing that's interesting about a hand like this, though, and I, I put Teferi in it for a reason, is because like post-board against certain decks, I think it is potentially keepable if you know that Teferi is such a back-breaking, you know, mirror breaker or combo killer or whatever it may be. But yep, Kiki Cheeky's a mirror breaker, by the way. It- <laughs> I'm for me, write that down. Yeah, for me, it really just comes down to opt. Like, I'll always cast it. Yep, yeah, I'll always opt to cast it. Yeah, I mean the the tap the tapped mana source just gets in, it's kind of the real issue here. Like, you can't. It just takes you off tempo in a deck where you just can't you can't lose that. Like, if you miss a couple land drops, you're just hosed. It's just it's too much here. Can we do? Can we do the fun the fun question that everybody has these days? Yes. Um, I feel like. It's a lot easier to keep one land spells in many decks and or one land hands in modern these days a lot more than it used to be because of so many good cantrips and so many decks that have them and so many one mana spells. So many of the decks that I play, it's like I open a I open a hand and it's like like when I was playing Shadow a lot, I would have like a hand that was all one drop spells, like a combination of basically you know, thought seizes, IOKs, DRCs, and Ragavans, and a Blood Crypt. And I would be like, this is not really on plan for me, but I can actually play a ton of cards out of here. I can surveil off of DRC. Like, it, it feels like it comes up to me much more often than it used to in modern specifically. Uh, what do you think? And I think if you run the numbers, you definitely are you're getting a lot more percentage points to draw that second land than you used to be, right? Like you said, yeah. there's there's lots of there's lots of ways to do it. Like if you're in a deck where you can see a lot of cards early on, uh, even in colors or, or strategies that form, formerly wouldn't have that, or like a Ragavan where it's like you know you can you can generate more mana if it connects. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You get your treasure token saves you that was it sorry i, I should have mentioned that that's the other big aspect of it is i find myself being <laughs> well, like well, Dave, I got you. if i have a mana dork if i have a land and a mana dork right? yeah i can use treasure it, it's now. a it's fun that you mentioned that because i've actually had a similar observation where i'm feeling more inclined to keep one landers for the specific reason you cited which is i can just ca- i can cast all the spells in my hand with this one mana why not but i think that's also just sort of the nature of modern more than the nature of magic and that, it's not necessarily a a heuristic that you can apply just blindly across formats. Uh, but other than to just be like, you, you should be super aware that, again, even things that feel like hard and fast rules about magic, like you really should try, you know, what does Arena say? Good, keepable hands have three to four lands mm-hmm. and spells that are low curve or something like that. Like that is a heuristic that can help you when you're really early in your journey in magic. But when you get deeper into a specific way that you like to play magic, those rules are going to change wildly i actually like this hypothesis as a, a a transition to our next point which is learning how to treat your games like experiments yeah this th- you know this thing you're talking about dave where you keep a one lander and a bunch of one mana spells in your hand sometimes what you have to do in that situation is ask yourself like the risk versus reward like i can literally cast all of my spells but i'm only going to do it like at one spell per turn right yeah how good is that yeah is that actually like meaningful tempo and the type of game that I'm playing. And I think one of the best ways to shortcut this notion of treating games like, like experiments is, is remember to ask yourself the question, like, will I win if this works? Yeah. There's so many 
ways to approach that too. Like there's so many like examples I can think of like PV DDR had like a really excellent recent article on his Substack about like the top five plays in magic history. And of course that's a bit of hyperbole and it's like five, you know, five amazing plays that he could have something to say about. And one of the things that he was talking, it's not as good of a title, Shane. Yeah. And it's It's weird, right? (laughs) So like things like playing to your outs by, by, like playing your outs is kind of like a, a magic fundamental in a lot of ways, right? Like think about the ways you, your deck can have you win, but there's a lot of different ways that you then use that mentality to actually execute that plan, right? Like, d- like one of the things I really liked was the example he gave of a player attacking in a way that was would be dumb unless he had a, a trick or removal spell for the attack coming back, right? And so chump blocking does nothing to actually let you win in some ways, right? Where it's like uh, you have to take more chances when you're behind in order to win and take fewer when you're ahead to not lose. That's kind of like an adage I've heard and something along those lines. But I think what PV gets at, and I think we'll link to this article in the show notes, is you have to be able to identify those opportunities to kind of get in your opponent's head to to get to the win if something does work because you can do something that is just a a weird decision or makes your opponent think you might be bluffing something but if it actually doesn't lead to a win if you do have what you're bluffing then there's no point in that so you have to be able to think about what can i what am i bluffing having here to then make my opponent make a mistake. Like if they're not thinking about this card that I do have, like they don't, they don't even, they don't identify the bluff. Like what, what line does this actually allow me to make happen? And then like even the, the, the nuts and bolts, like if I draw X card or Y card, then this line, a turn or two earlier gives me a chance to win. So I have to go for it. Like if, if I'm in a burn deck and I've got to draw a runner runner, I have a decent chance of doing that, right? And so, like, if I'm not going to win otherwise, I might just have to attack and just try to draw runner-runner. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of one of the scenarios, too, where you're like, okay, am I going to attack my three creatures into their two blockers, lose my two creatures that get blocked and only get two damage, yeah. too, because then I run a runner and then I win. Exactly. Like, that's because, it fe- you know, that's a short-term negative trade in order to put you in a position for how your deck wants to win you know and there's a lot of games in burn where you have to do stuff like that or yeah i'm constantly doing that but it's not always the right decision (laughs) yeah but it quite often you know it is if you bring them into the range right and then you're kind of like okay this is the only way i was going to win so now i'm going to do it i've made mistakes in that thing too where it's like i've in that same vein where it's like i didn't make a decision that let me play to those outs where it's like oh i really wish I had not held this back or I, I wish I wasn't playing around them drawing, dropping another creature because now my math to get to lethal is a, a turn too short. Or like I didn't anticipate, Oh, I didn't even think about drawing Boros charm here. Like I, I forgot that I have four mana, you know, four, four damage spells in my deck or something like that. Like there's all kind of little things that you need to just keep remembering what cards you even have access to. Yeah. One thing I would say really quickly about bluffing, by the way, and this is a similar thing in poker, is that, and this is like 101 in my mind stuff, is that just remember that not everybody 
Like before you start getting into fancy plays to represent certain lines to try to expect your opponent to do something different because the lines you're presenting, make sure that they're that you feel like they are um they know they're gonna know that. Like they're gonna be able to follow the story that you're trying to tell is yeah. like a because it's pretty tough sometimes in Magic to be like, oh, well, this is what I was representing X, and the other person's like, I was just playing my cards. And you're like, okay, well, I put all this effort into it. And sometimes that stuff can really come and come and bite you if you get too fancy and don't just go for the go for the, go for the line. You know, like you don't you don't have to try to be hiding behind things all the time necessarily, especially if their deck or just like their play style is kind of indicating to you that they can't, you're not going to benefit from that anyway. Yeah. The bluff has to be the line almost. Right. Chin, I'm glad you mentioned this PV article. I, I want to cite a, a section from it. Um, it's a, a match. He, uh, Apollo recaps between Patrick Sullivan and Ross Merriam. I think it's like the last scenario in this article. And I'm, I'm actually going to read a part from it. They're talking about legacy. He cites specific cards. Don't even worry about the cards. The cards don't matter in this example. I really just want to highlight the language that Paulo is using to describe the game. That uh, ultimately Sullivan found a, a very specific line to, to get the win. He writes, it's true that Sullivan's play is not the perfect play, but to me, it is a play that shows a great macro level understanding of the game. The key to this play is to know that if you don't beat your opponent this turn, you're not going to win the game anymore. And for that to happen, you need them to tap their wasteland and use their pride mage. Again, just to harken back to where we started with this segment, like, if this works, I win. I think this is kind of an exhibit of, of, of that thinking in motion. Paulo writes, Sullivan acknowledged this and found a way to make this happen by threatening Ross enough that he feared for his life, and that is where the genius of his play lies. He created a scenario in which Ross felt the need to act, and the hardest part about this play is knowing that you have to do this to begin with and being willing to drop to one life with the Flame Rift to do it. And you also have to respect, you have to have an opponent that you know is going to rep, know what you're doing, like Dave said, right? Which is just like, Ross is schooled and experienced enough to know that what uh, Sully, P. Sully was doing actually represented certain things right but like uh, like me i would just be like uh i have no idea what you're doing this seems fine do whatever you're doing i, I don't think you'd be at, at that level of the bracket where you're playing against people at that level then shane i'm always playing i play legacy burn versus psle all the time <laughs> right and and we're not just talking about r- bluffing here too right like if i win I, I win if this works can also mean about like crazy keepable hands it could be about like trying to find a specific card off of a planeswalker that draws you things or trying to bait them to use interaction on one thing because you're trying to hold something else in your hand when the path is clear and it's it's trying to manufacture these scenarios where the ceiling is highest for you if your opponent does a certain thing actually getting your opponent to do the thing is the hard part so really you just have to try to play as optimally as possible and understand what they're also capable of so that they potentially then think about what their options are and, and go down the path that you're leading them. Yeah. Do you, I don't, I think that, that we frequently talk about this as like you're on the ropes and you have to do something a little bit weird to like X to like manufacture a win. But I think there's a lot of times where this just happens in just regular gameplay, right? Where it's like, it could be like a micro win where it's like not necessarily winning the match or winning the game. It's like, I'm maneuvering the board state in a way 
that I want. Like I, this turn, I did this, which then didn't allow my opponent to do the next thing, right? Where it's like, you're not always just coming back from a losing situation. It's about incremental gaining of advantage on the board. However, I do want to talk really quickly in this same conversation about, you know, we have this thing, if I win, if this works, but we also need to talk about the sort of opposite of that syndrome, which is sort of like, I can't do anything, so I lose. You need to really look at when you're playing, you need to really give yourself the time and like lateral thinking space to be able to look at your hand and make sure that you don't have a way to do something when it seems like, or that you, you know, that you really are out of actions when you feel like you're out of actions, right? Because there's lots of games that I think people scoop too early or they kind of go like they kind of go ah my plan a isn't working so i'm just not going to engage with this game the same way you know like shane said a minute ago sometimes you have to do something weird to manufacture a win i i think that you should give yourself time to make sure that you do that and look at your cards really hard and go okay if i cast this and do this is that a new thing and this is that's where you should be trying to do something different because you're out of options. So you sh you're not playing your A line anymore. You're like, okay, uh, what do I, what happens if I cast this? Like today I heard, and I don't know how commonly this comes up, for example, but so Demonic Tutors won the challenge today on Magic Online. And apparently the decisive play was evoking uh, an endurance so that Tutors had an extra creature in play to be able to have enough mana to court a calling in a Yawgmoth. Yeah, heads up. Okay. So like, <laughs> but like you would never want to do that. Like, I mean, yeah. you do, you want to obviously, but that's not, that's just not inside of the space of which you, what you want to do in a normal game. But when your back is against the wall and not knowing for sure that he, you know, demonic was had their back against the wall then, but having that kind of like creative thinking in that space and giving yourself a minute to think through it is kind of the, the next thing I think you should do. So it's kind of like, if I'm out of options, try to come up with some new things. And that's another way to experiment in a game. One last way to experiment? It's with new cards. Spoiler season, dogs. It's over. We got new cards to play with. Like Maestro's Initiate. There's two reasons to play new cards. One is you bought a set booster box and you need to do something with these bulk rares. <laughs> David. The other reason Tolu's is to Clever Conductor. Here we go. <laughs> You're just making up cards now. The bane of my existence is when people read the contents of their booster packs cards that I'm never going to need to know <laughs> while you're podcasting, about, especially then dig up the body. The other reason to try new cards is to identify your preferences yeah. for slots in decks. Give me an example. Like what are some preferences that you yeah. think you have Stanislav? So I think conventional wisdom is that decks are solved, but have flex slots. For instance, if you look at, is it Mark tied? You know, since Modern Horizons 2 has come out to now, you'll see that like at least 75% of that deck hasn't changed. But the last 25% has evolved either because something new came out, like maybe some powerful channel lands. But frequently it's like various forms of interaction that may be relevant to a given format or, or a tournament, right? Another example of this is Tron, where it's like Tron doesn't get new cards all that often. Over the years, like 75% of that deck is exactly the same as the lands and how you get to Tron lands. But like yes. sometimes you'll see flex slots devoted to Thrag Tusk or Ugin the Ineffable or, or Dismember various or Emrakuls. Exactly. Four Relics or. I, I think people will sometimes default to thinking like those flex slots are devoted entirely to a metagame. And I think that's partially true. 
But I think the other metagame you're playing is with yourself and identifying how you want to play a certain deck and what you're going to devote those flex slots to so that you know what your cards are capable of doing and what you're capable of doing with them. I put a relic in my pocket and metagamed myself. (laughs) That's right. And you needed that graveyard all along. In the Merc.Dot example, I've been seeing that deck lately run a couple copies of Spell Pierce and a Brazen Borrower. And in the past, those slots were things like Fury, a fourth copy of Archmage's Charm, Blood Moons, etc. And in some cases, though, you may recognize that the most upside comes from a Blood Moon, because you're playing a bunch of Amulet and Tron matchups. But in an unknown field, those spots and cards can be anything. And I think there's more to gain from playing to your strengths than copying last week's version of a deck that won a Modern Challenge. And ultimately, sometimes it's important to trust your gut, because you know you're going to know what to do with a Fury or a fourth Archmage's Charm or a full playset of Lightning Bolts more often than like when you're saving your Spell Pierce or what you're trying to bring or sideboard things out for. Playing to the things that you're most comfortable with because of the deck that you're identified as, as your deck of choice mm-hmm. is, is going to probably give you more dividends than like playing with unknown flex slots with cards that you're not super practiced with because you don't know what matchups they actually matter in. It almost reminds me of like going way back to like one of the episodes we had on sideboarding, where it's like, don't just play 15 cards from a deck list. You have to know what they're there for. And I think that's also in your main deck, right? Where it's like, if you have a strong opinion or preference for how your main deck is constructed and you have some decent reason for making that argument, I think that's just as important, right? Where it's like, no what you want to be doing with your deck and know how you want to tweak that game plan and and run with it. Yeah. And experimenting can go beyond the format that you're playing. Like sometimes playing a format outside of your comfort zone can teach you magic fundamentals. Like sometimes I'll play legacy or limited just for the sake of seeing what's happening in those formats and trying to understand like, If I'm playing with some of the same cards, are they being played the same way? If I'm playing with better versions of familiar cards, what do those open up that I'm maybe even trying to replicate in my format with a smaller card pool? Dave, I I actually want to pick your brain on this one in particular because we talk about this sometimes. In the days before the dive down, you were largely a limited grinder. We called you Draft Chaff Dave. Yeah. Your kids still do. Yeah. And and sometimes you and I will actually be like playing constructed matches against one another, and then you'll do a thing, and then you'll say, you know where I learned that was from in Estrad Limited. And you're like, don't say that to me. <laughs> How often are you finding like opportunities to exercise skills that you pick up from draft that might not be as common in constructed matches? So I think we've we've talked about a number of the different things that I really learned from Limited already. You know, some of the some of those are Playing to your outs is one big one that I think you get kind of in sharper relief when you're limited. I also think that learning fundamental like mathematics of draws and things like that is something that you should you kind of I learned from playing limited. I think it's easier to learn from limited in some ways because you a lot of times you're more thinking about like is it a spell, is it a creature, is it a land, and so the math gets a little bit kind of like easier to to work your way through. So I think those are things that I really honed playing limited. The big one that we haven't talked about yet though is uh, combat. Combat yes, map. limited is combat. Yeah, and it's really kind of like respecting being able to work through 
complicated board states. Because I think what happens in constructed sometimes is people sort of look at, you know, if you get these games where all of a sudden there's like someone has four or five creatures out and the other side has four or five creatures out and then you just kind of stare at each other and you're kind of like, are we supposed to, to, to attack? Am I okay trading off material here? You know, do I want to blow my removal spell to like get rid of a blocker to do something? That kind of stuff I think you really learn extremely well in limited. And so that's that's one of the main insights I have. And I think that the way that it translates more for me into playing modern than anything else is realizing sometimes when I'm at a point in a game where my deck is not working the way it's supposed to, or that my plan A is not going to happen. And I just need to start getting in there with two twos and one ones because I can actually close. Because uh, what's realistically happened is everybody's out of resources. I have a two two. And then all of a sudden, okay, I, I might actually be able to ride this to victory, even though I'm, you know, playing blue-white control. I'm going to kill you a Snapcaster mage or something like that. Like Recognizing that that happens and not forgetting those free attacks that you get is something that I think you really learn in, in Limited, for sure. Um, that That's the main one. The other thing I would say is the just practicing around implicit data, like knowing what kinds of cards are in your opponent decks or what types of answers they might have and playing around what happens when they have one of those answers is kind of, I think, something that's easy to, to work through in limited a little bit more than, you know, when you're playing constructed, sometimes you're going to run into a combo deck who doesn't have answers and then another deck that's doing something different and the third one that's doing something different when really you want to get those reps in and just knowing like what happens when they kill my creature and I don't kill their creature, but then I do a trick tricky thing to move their creature out of combat like being resourceful with those kind of things i think is another thing you learn from limited like when i was talking earlier about what demonic tutors did i think you open yourself up to more novel lines when you play with uh cards that decks that aren't as well crafted i will say i also think that you should should watch out for tendencies that you pick up from formats that you're in that don't translate to other formats too so one thing that i have as a bad habit in from being a limited player versus a modern player is I often don't for a long time playing constructed, I would be like, well, they don't have it. Like I would just shortcut it to be like, they're not really that likely to have an answer here. So I'm just going to shove all in and try to try to attack, or I'm not going to believe that they have a removal spell or something like that. In constructed people have answers so much more <laughs> yeah. than they do in limited that, you know, I think I had to sort of recalibrate my mental math about how off, how risky it was to attack into a certain situation based on the fact that people always have answers. And what you really need to do is be thinking about like the next level up from there, which is, how do I answer their answer? And then I'm ready to party <laughs> kind of, as opposed to being like, eh, I already got one of their removal spells. So they probably don't have another one. Let's go. Yeah. I have experienced that. And it hurts. Okay. This last point, there's not a lot of examples to really cite here. I think it's, it's obvious, but it bears repeating. It's something that people will cite to us occasionally when we have guest spots, um, as ways to improve as a competitor. Ask better Magic players to provide feedback on your games. And those better Magic players don't have to be Stan, Dave, and Shane. They don't have to be Luis and PV. It could literally just be your friends. And you have so many ways to get that feedback with tools or no tools. Magic Online replays exist. These are your friends. I'll admit, I never watch my own MTGO replays unless I'm in a coaching session. Because yeah. it's so dreadfully boring. I probably should. I'd probably learn something from them, but I'd rather play more because <laughs> that's more fun. Yeah. 
I, I like to do it sometimes, but it's one of those things I just never find time to. I do think yeah. it's funny the dumb mistakes that you see that happen occasionally and those that you sort of brush off in the moment. Yeah. Is yes. one thing is you're kinda like, Oh, it's no big deal. I didn't I dropped the wrong land. And then when you watch it in the in the replay, you're like, Oh my god, I just forgot to drop a land on turn four in this right. just F sixth or something, and you're like, Ah, you know, and in the moment I think that you let yourself off the hook a little bit more than sometimes when you're looking through those. Yeah. And, and you can gain information from your winning matches and your losing matches too. Yeah. And sometimes because you make suboptimal plays and the real luck was in the win you found and not necessarily in like the draws you had. And the real luck was in the wins we found along the way. That's right. Yeah. I think this can happen in a lot of different ways, right? Like I think, and it really comes down to, what your mindset is in the moment where it's like when, when Dave and I hang out, like, you know, I always crash at his house and we'll be playing games of magic late at night. And we're not looking, so we're not looking to like necessarily get better in that moment. We're just jamming some games, hanging out at his you know dining room table. But I think that there are plenty of opportunities uh, playing with friends uh, where you could like, what are we learning here like when you like i think when you and i were playing uh mono red versus rakdos uh in pioneer mm-hmm. even though we were just kind of like how do these decks feel i think we were also kind of like how did this feel against each other like what do you think you know how do you think this your your tempo feels against mine like what cards matter here yeah and and in some of those situations shane where you and i were just like i think just doing game ones over and over it also helps inform like what i need to do to win in this matchup yeah and I think that's that's the approach, right? Where it's like, sure, it's it's fun to be hanging out with Stanislav in real life and playing some cards, but also it's like just having a, something in the back of your mind, like what am I trying to accomplish in this game? And it's all well and good if it's just to screw around and have fun. But like, yeah. if your mentality is I want to be getting better while I'm playing, then having something that you want to take away from that, going back to that early point we made, which is like, what's my approach here and what mindset do I have to have? And it doesn't need to be like raise, you know, laser focused, like trying to get everything you can out of it, squeezing every bit of juice out of that orange. It can just be, I'm having fun, but I also want to feel like what this matchup is like. Uh, I, I also have a Dave example. Dave, when you and I were flying to Dallas-Fort Worth and I surprised you by getting the seat right next to you and then we right. played some magic matches. It's a cherished um, memory. Yeah, on our on our little trays. One thing that I really appreciate about those matches and, and the friendly matches that I get to enjoy with people periodically is the transparency that you can have since the stakes are so low where you can, A, talk about the stuff in your hand and, and what you're trying to figure out and and in doing so, your opponents will sometimes tell you things that you don't see, but you can or should. And I felt like when you and I were playing, God, I want to say it was Tide against Shadow. Yeah, that's all we had time for, so. Yeah, there are some situations where, like, I would scoop because I would say, you got me, and you will you would have said something like, oh yeah, because I could have done like this, and then would have put you here, and then this would happen, and I would, I would cite, and you know, I don't want to rib Dave 30,000 feet in the air because, like, airplanes, you got to stay safe, but I'll do it on mic. But, like, I felt like in those conversations, I got to cite, like, yeah, but you also had dress down and a fetch land and blah and blah and blah. So, no matter what I did, you had like 20,000 outs. And sometimes those outs, like, just you don't see them. Not you, Dave, but the royal you. And I think having these open conversations during friendly matches with players at your level or better than you or, or, 
players below your level where you can impart wisdom. I think that is sometimes what sharpens your perceptions to things that are easy to overlook when you're really just like thinking about the cards you drew and how you can cast them. Yeah. Magic's complicated. Sometimes when you're on a plane, you just forget things. Sometimes during your tournament, you just forget things. And it's I think I think it's fine if the people you're playing against are nice to even go. You know, I know some people are like, well, how could I have done better? It's kind of a weird conversation then, but I do think you can have a short conversation with people at like an FNM or something if, and just kind of be like, hey, what did you think about this that I did? And, you know, most people will give you good, honest feedback. And um, that can be a good learning experience too. Yeah. I hate having those conversations with strangers. I really only want to talk to you guys or people <laughs> that I know I respect. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> Just because I'm there to win and get that heck out of there as quickly as possible. Give me some store credit. Did you sign my slip? Thanks. Never talking to you again. <laughs> I'm going to stand I'll, over here in the corner and awkwardly, awkwardly look at the board games. Oh, they have this many versions <laughs> of Azul now. I didn't even know. I'll see you next week at the, at the next LGS event. Sorry, I didn't hear you. I was counting my prize wall tickets. <laughs> I got an exclusive new play mat. It's solid brown. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth $3,000. So there you have it, folks. That's how to be a better Magic player. I hope you've been taking notes. Because I'm not, I'm not, not going to timestamp this. you got to listen to the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do, do, do you think we hit, nailed it, guys? Is, is there any really critical things that we overlooked yes. that, that came to mind no. that may be absent from from our temple probably there definitely are but i have no idea yeah i mean i for me it really comes it, it still it keeps coming back in my mind to like the have have a mindset of of growing have a growth mindset right but like and then have an approach to to getting that growth right and i think that it doesn't need to be all encompassing it doesn't need to be i'm going like like we when we talk about goals it doesn't need to be i'm going to win the pro tour i'm going to make worlds it can be i'm going to grow in this fashion over the next few weeks i'm going to pay attention to this aspect of my game i'm going to identify this particular gap in my skill or this hole in my game, and I'm going to try to patch that up. And I'm going to do that with the help of a coach. I'm going to do that with the help of watching replays. I'm going to do that through playing games with my friends and talking about what's happening and get there. And I think that that incremental approach and that mindset, uh, continual approach and that continual mindset uh, without exhausting yourself is, is really important. And you don't have to do all these things all at once. Like, you can start to... F- spend a week focusing on keepable hands versus playable hands. You know, what's optimized versus like, should I roll the dice and see if I can open something stronger? You know, you spend a week like thinking, how can I start deconstructing more matches into mathematical terms so I can actually see like the numbers of the game and use that to inform like how much time is left or my position. But eventually it's the combination of all these skills and all these practices that can translate into more wins, you know, a better return on your investment, less guilt about buying Narset's Reversal for $6. $6 card, Narset's Reversal. What? And I better win to make it worth it. But this was fun. I, I, we haven't done a strategic episode of this sort in a few months at least. So thank you again to Cody, one of our top tier patrons for challenging us and, and inviting us to, to kind of dwell on this topic Cody, I hope you loved this episode as much as we loved making it. All you other listeners, I hope you gained something from it because this is a topic that we care about. You know, we always want to be better magic players. And over time, as we pick up some of these skills, 
we're happy to share them with you as well since you've paid us to improve and to try (laughs) play more magic i'm a lot better at podcasting than i was three years ago i'll say that i agree but that does wrap up this week's show if you haven't yet make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out and if you use apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review you can do so on spotify as well i think there are ratings there now too if you'd like to submit a question to our show, you can always tweet us at the dive down, all one word. You can email the dive down at gmail.com. If you're exploring Explorer, let us know what decks you found successful with. We are really excited when people tag us on Twitter with the decks that they take to Mythic or find other success with in these formats. We want to see, especially in Explorer, what's popping off in the early days. Just tag us right next to Fire Shoes. Yeah, Fire Shoes, the dive down. And then, I don't know, LSV? Sure. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon, patreon.com slash the dive down. And if you support us at the top tier, this could be an episode of yours one day. Tell us what you want us to talk about. We will work with you to make it a dive down quality show. And hopefully you will like it as much as Cody does. Shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring the dive down. Sign up for a Mana Traders account using promo code the dive down 2022. Get 15% off your first two months of renting magic online cards. Get better by playing more magic, testing your new skills against other competitors with mana traders. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceboat for letting us use their music. And until next week, thank you, Cody! Cody!